Hello, you are listening to Audio Fanfic Podcast. Sea Glass Blue by Mel Forbes on AO3. Rating General Audiences. Chapter 8. When he wakes, he turns towards her and sees her flattening herself to the bed, burrowing beneath the comforter. The stove hardly needs wood. He's too warm. But she looks almost like she would start shivering if only her body had enough energy to do so. Based on her breathing, she's awake. Hard day, he whispers, staying soft. Though he can hear the sea outside, the rest of the world is quiet. Just the stove crackling on, the sounds of her breathing, the calm waves coming to shore. He doesn't want to wake the rest of the world up just yet. She hums in response, so he takes that as an affirmative. Whatever they had planned for today isn't going to happen. Though he pulls up low-energy ideas like staying on the beach or taking down one of the weathered board games from the stack in the living room, all he needs to do is look at her in order to know that today is a bed day and nothing else. He'll cover the basics while she rests, putting on fresh clothes, starting breakfast, portioning her pills, and making her take them with the chocolate pudding instead of water. He'll bring her book, if she can manage that. He'll rest beside her, even though he has plenty of energy, pretending that he doesn't, so she won't feel so alone. He'll rub her back if she'll let him. But, before he leaves the room, before he finds a new shirt, and figures out what to make her to eat, he hesitates by the bed. Feels it would be wrong to leave. Though their partnership has never been conventional, and though their marriage has been ruled by the line-blurring of terminal illness, he still feels he should do something. Tries to think of what he saw on TV of husbands waking wives, a bite of breakfast before picking up the briefcase and pecking the missus on the cheek, a honey, I'm home that was met with a tepid response. He loves her, and to whatever degree she can right now, she knows that he loves her. But it feels suddenly so important that he reinforced such a thing. He has to say something anything to make her realize that he loves her. But she doesn't want to hear that right now, for she doesn't want to hear anything. So he walks to her side of the bed, crouches alongside, reaches for her exposed left hand. To conserve what energy she can, she's kept her eyes closed, so she doesn't watch as he grips her hand ever so slightly, as he leans down to kiss her knuckles, where they rest on the bed. She looks proper with a wedding band so proper that he can edit the ring into all of his memories of her. Their first meeting in which she knocked twice, as he made a bad joke. The time she passed him his stakeout lunch. Her hand against the steering wheel as she braked hard. All along, he's known that she's someone worth caring about. Someone to watch your kids while you go on a much-needed night out. Someone who volunteers to help with Easter egg hunts on the grounds of the church after Mass each year. She's competent, yes, and she's highly educated but she possesses something unteachable beneath both of those things. A vulnerability of spirit, a kind of loving. Still, that vulnerability, inevitably, led to fear, so she keeps herself at a distance, avoids deeper connection. But now, she's opening to him, because she has no other choice. She's opening to him because nothing can really hurt her anymore. I never want to hurt you, he thinks, as he stands, hopes she understands without hearing it directly. I never want to be the source of your pain. He makes her toast with butter, something tolerable. The pile of snack packs in the fridge makes him smile each time he looks for a cup. Whenever he's at her place, 
he inevitably ends up opening the fridge, looking for a beer or a snack, and sometimes coming up short when he finds only boneless, skinless chicken breasts, unsweetened almond milk, and the world's biggest box of spinach, and three takeout oyster pails that may not even be from this year. The contrast of pudding cups, plastic-bound, red-capped pudding cups that aren't low-sugar, low-fat, low-carb, low-anything, is cute. On cases, he's watched as she's denied herself everything, from half a candy bar shared with him to a Coke at midnight when she's about to fall asleep at the wheel. So this indulgence, this minor, almost quotidian, completely mediocre indulgence, makes him giddy. Next week, he's going to try to get her to eat a slice of chocolate cake. No, they just had cake. Wedding cake. He has two slices in his freezer at home. One for each of them. A first anniversary tradition. Next year around this time, he'll eat two slices of old cake. He doesn't even think he'll want to eat them, not because of the meaning and associations attached, but because your old frozen cake sounds gross. But he promised her he would, so he's going to. But still, the minor fantasy creeps in, the idea that they would sit on his couch together and eat each slice, feeling blissful in the haze of their luck, overwhelmed with thankfulness, because they made it to one year after never thinking they would. But the toast popped. He has to butter the slices, and he needs to get a spoon for her pudding. The fantasy ends as quickly as it starts, and he's left alone again. His marriage temporary, his life with her a mere glimpse at what could have been. If he imagines things, he'll only hurt himself. He spreads butter onto the toast, so hard that he sends crumbs flying onto the kitchen counter and falling to the floor. When he returns to the bedroom, her eyes are open, and she's trying to lift herself from the bed. Not sit up but not bend in with the bottom sheets either. She hasn't taken her pills yet. Here, he says, holding out the pudding cup and spoon. No need for water. And she stares down at the red-capped cup in her hesitant hand, then looks at him with defeat. I'm really nauseous, Mulder, she says, the statement sounding like an apology. Just some toast, then. Sitting down at the foot of her side of the bed, he presses the plate of toast towards her. Breakfast in bed. If it were Valentine's Day, and if she were healthy, he would have made her pancakes, then sliced strawberries on top, even though he doesn't know how to slice strawberries. I can't, she says, the hand that doesn't hold the pudding pushing the plate away. I'm sorry. It's not supposed to be an insult, but he feels a twinge at the refusal. Maybe his cooking is fine, but she won't let him care for her, and he feels smaller than he did before. No matter what he imagines, she wouldn't be next to him as he pulls the cake from the freezer. He should have just left one slice like she told him to. He should have listened. I'm going to stoke the fire, he says, to excuse himself, for he doesn't want to look emotional in front of her. Not now, not in the morning and while she's in pain. He'll take a few minutes to center himself, then come back in when he's sure his feelings won't betray his exterior. Because he needs to. He shuts the bedroom door behind himself, fingers hovering over the knob a moment too long. He lifts the lid of the stove, but the fire is fine, and the house is plenty warm enough even for a sick day, so he walks carefully towards the bookshelf. If he's light on his feet, then maybe even creaky boards won't betray him now. He looks at the titles again. In a house so far from the town and so void of entertainment, the radio here looks like the ones cars had when he was a small child and barely reaches the local main public radio station. There's not even a rabbit ear television, and he only discovered the record player by accident. 
He can't hide from himself, let alone from her, but he's willing to seek out a distraction nonetheless. He makes a mental list of the books he's read. Little Women, for an Oxford professor teaching introductory psychiatric principles, had a disconcerting sense of humor. The Secret Garden, for it had been Samantha's favorite. 1984, because who hadn't? And Moby Dick, for she mentioned her father's nickname for her after they left work one day in their first year as partners, and in a strange slow-motion fugue that he would later learn to call attraction, he drove not to his home that day, but to Barnes & Noble, picking up a brand new copy before realizing that classics like this one deserved to have had their backs broken long before one's first read of them. Which of these had she already read? Last year, she took great expectations on four flights with him, and he charted time in the movements of her bookmark, only ever reaching halfway before she packed a different book in her suitcase. It feels strange now to think that she must have finished a book without him knowing, not because he feels possessive, but because she never told him what she thought of the ending, how the book made her feel. He wishes he'd asked. Because he hasn't read it yet, he takes down The Count of Monte Cristo from the shelves, an old penguin classic with cracks along the spine, the pages yellowing, and sits down on the couch to read. Just a few pages, and then he'll go back into the bedroom and lie down with her, see if she'll at least eat a little bit, and though he doesn't know what to do on sick days with her, if there were a television here, it would be on, and he would go to the local blockbuster and pick up three tapes to share with her. Steel Magnolias, and Back to the Future, and a new one that neither of them had ever seen. But he can't do any of that now. So he'll just stay with her. If he can, he'll coax her out for the sunset because he knows she doesn't want to miss it. And for dinner, he'll make soup with ginger to calm her stomach. He'll do his best. And he's reread the first page three times now, and he's retained nothing from it. His mind too full to focus on anything but her. So he closes the book and leaves it on the couch while he goes to the bedroom, gently opens the door. When he sees her curled up in bed, her body on her side of the bed, but her head on his pillow, her eyes closed and the quilt pulled up to her chin. He's glad he stayed quiet. Tiptoeing over creaky boards, opening the door slowly, the pudding cup sits unopened and abandoned on her bedside table. Though the plate of toast hasn't moved, there's half a slice missing, and the sight of the crumbs left on the plate is enough to make him sigh in relief. Her hair is just long enough that he can take it all in one hand and hold it back while she vomits. Though he asked if he could tie it back for her, she said she had a headache, didn't want to aggravate anything else today. Two or three bites of toast, just two or three bites, and she took a Zofran too. But they're in the bathroom together nonetheless. She's hunching over the toilet and him kneeling alongside her. By the time she starts breathing easier, pulling down the lid of the toilet, flushing the last bit of energy she can muster, she's spent enough to shamelessly lean in on him, forehead to his chest, lips warm and wet against his body. She's shivering. I'm sorry, she manages, and he clutches her awkwardly, toward him, tries to cradle her, and he realizes that the last time he watched someone other than her vomit, he was a child sharing a bedroom with his sister, and Samantha was sick onto the carpet and too nervous to tell their parents, so Mulder had cleaned it up instead. I'm sorry, she'd said back then, too, and he must have complained and made fun of her for it. He palms the back of Scully's head and echoes, I'm sorry too. Twenty minutes, an hour, he's lost track of time. He wonders if the sun will set anytime soon. 
she manages to stand up and brush her teeth, still in her pajamas, still bracing herself against the bathroom sink, because not even the good drugs can touch this kind of nausea. It's just a side effect of the chemo, she told him earlier. But when he watches her leave the bathroom, when she pulls herself beneath the covers of their bed and nestles in so deeply that he wonders if she has enough energy to breathe, his mind starts to wander. Is it wandering if it only approaches the inevitable truth? He won't let himself thank certain words, fearing that they could invoke horrible spirits or create bad omens. Though he's not a spiritual or superstitious person, he wants to pour salt in a circle around her bed, then climb in alongside her and promise that nothing will hurt them. Not spirits or ghosts, not tumors in her skull. He wants to promise her that everything will be okay, but he can't. But he climbs into bed alongside her nonetheless, and she leans towards him in bed, her forehead cresting his pillow, her arm draping over his stomach. She likes to hold him in this way, and the copy of The Count of Monte Cristo is on his bedside table, and before she was sick, he read the first 20 pages to her, squinting because he hadn't taken his reading glasses out of his suitcase beforehand. Apparently, she's never read this book either. He wishes he knew all of the books she's ever read, then wishes he only knew the important ones, the ones to pull from her shelves and keep forever, the ones he can't let her family send to goodwill instead. Taking the book from his bedside table, he opens up to the last page he read. Starts from the very top. We were past there, she says, voice hollow, eyes closed. Though she's not looking, she's positioning in such a way that she could stare through their wide bedroom window, looking out at the sea. He wishes she would open her eyes. Go halfway down the page. So he follows her instructions, but she says, no, that's too far. He compromises on a midpoint paragraph, and then she settles in, breath soft, body warm despite her shivers. Though he's too hot underneath all of the blankets, it would hurt to go above them, to be that far from her. So he stays underneath, reading to the end of the page, using the hand farthest from her to turn the page. If he pauses long enough, he can hear the waves outside, feel the slow, steady beat of her heart, listen to the crackling of the wood stove. But if he waits too long, she'll whisper for him to keep going, and he'll pick up right where he left off, continuing the story for her. By the 80th page, he finds himself growing hungry, but eating without her would be uncomfortable. So he denies the feeling, takes long pauses as he reads in hopes that she's fallen asleep, then wonders how he could pull himself away from her in bed without waking her in the process. But when she falls asleep, she falls hard. So he manages to shimmy away from her, leaves the bedroom door open while he heads into the kitchen for a sandwich. On the kitchen counter, the roses from yesterday look gloom, their bright sultry red stark against this classic kitchen, floral dish towels, generational Dutch ovens, cook timers with the second lines fading away. Should he make her lunch? Should he take one of the roses from the vase and set it on her pillow, so that when she wakes up, the first thing she sees is a pretty red flower? Should he call her mother and say that things aren't looking good right now? She isn't going to die today. He knows she isn't going to die today. But he spreads mayonnaise on bread, puts turkey and Swiss on top, steps back every so often to look towards the bedroom, make sure he hasn't missed anything in there. Though he's not sure how true the stories are, he's heard of plenty of terminally ill patients will hold on for days longer than any doctor could expect, only dying once their loved ones were out of the hospital room, even if they only left for a few minutes. 
He plates his sandwich, then carries the plate with him as he walks back towards the bedroom, looking in on her sleeping figure, watches until he's counted three of her breaths before sitting in the bedroom doorway, plate on his lap and eating lunch. Though she isn't going to die today, he insists on sitting there and keeping watch. Where does care end and harm begin? She doesn't eat dinner. He doesn't force her through any more toast. Though he tells her that she feels warm to him, feverishly warm, she says that she always gets too warm when she's tired. She washes up for bed, half-hunched, her back in pain from the vomiting, skin pale, cheeks hollow. How is it that she looked so much better yesterday? She slept through the sunset. They're 200 pages into the book. When she sits down in bed, ready to take her pills for the night, she hesitates, holds the glass of water to her chest, stares down the pill bottles and waits. It's just water, he says, taking to his own side the bed. She had a Zofran four hours ago. He planned for this. You'll be fine. I'm not so sure, she says, turning halfway towards him, her expression exhausted, emotions unreadable. Take them, he insists. After a few minutes more of silent deliberation, she pops open the first bottle of pills, swallows little gulps of water, tries not to test fate. First, he turns off the bedside lamp, and in quick succession, she turns off hers, nestling into bed alongside him, not touching. Tonight she stays to her own pillow, and he stays to his. Though part of him wants to move towards her, wrap his arms around her, and hold her even if just for a moment, another part of him thinks of how she must feel right now. The dizziness. The nausea. They spend enough time together today. He wonders how she hasn't tired of him yet. How she hasn't yelled and pushed him away and asked him if he could leave her alone for a few minutes. He wonders if he's taking care of her well. There were enough times in Oxford when he nursed hungover friends back to health. And though he tends to get the flu every winter because of his poor diet, his poor hygiene, his poor sense of self, whatever explanation the Tamiflu pusher at the urgent care near his apartment decided on that year. He's never had someone bring him cough syrup and soup to help him feel better, and he's certainly never given any care to someone else. Had his sister not disappeared, he knows he would have done those things for her. Bring her a cap full of syrup while their parents did who knows what, placing a cold washcloth on her forehead to ease her fever. But instead, he's been forced to do those things for himself. Going to the closest drugstore on his own, dizzy with fever on the walk home. So far as he knows, Scully doesn't get sick except in short, life-threatening spurts. Captured or abducted, ventilators and x-rays, and pulling the plug diagnosis. But last spring, her seasonal allergies had taken her by surprise and led her to keep saline nasal spray in her purse, along with Benadryl, that she would take only if he insisted on driving her home. Even if he'd watched her be sick before, he still wouldn't know what she needed most of such times. For she's never told him. Maybe she doesn't want anything. Maybe she's never told him because all she's ever wanted in those times is to be left alone. But she's not angry with him. He doubts she has the energy to be angry right now. Tomorrow he'll ask what she needs instead of standing passively by, reading paragraph after paragraph to her, sneaking away from meals that she won't share. Tomorrow he'll take care of her in the right way. That night he dreams of her bookshelves, this time lined with black journals, like the one in her suitcase, anonymous and powerless, a sea of dark leather in her apartment. He reaches out for one, picking at random, and opens up to find words he can't read but her handwriting for certain. And though he can't decipher the messages, he knows instinctively, 
This one is from last year. This one is from this year. The one after that is from next year. She won't be alive next year. But he reaches out for that journal nonetheless and pages through. He stills, for this one is empty, lined with uninked pages. The story she was never able to tell spread across white pages. From the first page to the last, the notebook is empty. So he frets and puts that one back and takes out the one from this year. And yes, the notebook has writing, writing, writing. But a quarter way through, the writing ends and the expanse of white pages begins. And a quarter of that year, that's March, April. It's April now. How frequently does she write? Though he tries to read the dates at the tops of the pages, he can't make out the numbers. If she writes every day, then a quarter is nothing. A quarter means she'll die in her sleep tonight. A quarter means she'll take her last breath at five in the morning while he dozes beside her. A quarter means that he'll wake up to find her body cold and her eyes cloudy with cataracts. If she writes once or twice a month, then he has time. He has time. He could take her to Martha's Vineyard in the summer. He could see her in a swimsuit. He could watch her walk away from him on the beach and towards the sea. Then watch how she turns halfway around, meets his gaze and smiles. Her eyes so warm and so blue. And he takes down another notebook, empty, and another, empty, and another until he's ripping apart this bookshelf. The wood planks falling, splintering, collapsing. And then her entire apartment's collapsing. The striped couch cushions ripping open, her bathtub cowering in on itself. Her little rice paper lamps torn in two. The place falls apart and buries him in rubble and unfulfilled pages, and years of life she was never able to live. If she writes once a day, then she'll be dead when he wakes up. If she writes once a month, then he'll watch her smile on the beach this summer. Shaking himself from the dream, he takes a deep breath, panting with the effort, and when he dares look over at her in bed, he finds her side empty, covers pulled back, pillow cold, and then he hears her retching in the dark. And then he stumbles as he climbs out of bed. Fuge state, he touches the walls to ground himself. The house is dark, and there's no smoke coming from the chimney of the other houses on this inlet. When he slaps at the light switch in the bathroom, he finds the toilet stained, her head resting on the bath mat, blood on her face and dripping down onto the floor. He's frozen for a moment, and then he counts them. One, two, three breaths. Scully, he says, kneels before her, Shakes her shoulder too fast and too much, but he needs her to open her eyes. Did she faint? Did she hit her head? Is she asleep? But then she blinks awake and looks up at him, and he reaches out, feels her forehead, still warm. He's not listening to her about temperature anymore. Scully, what happened? Nothing she manages, but she won't wipe at the blood from her nose, won't move, and he knows it's not nothing. He knows that if he doesn't take her to the hospital, she'll die. She'll die, and it'll be all his fault. So he leans down over her, wraps his arms around her, and lifts her up against her inconsequential protests, carries her out of the bathroom, the bedroom, the main room, the cottage, and it's so dark outside that he trips on the gravel in the driveway that he bumps her back against the car door as he pulls it open. She's slack in the passenger seat, and though his instincts tell him to get into the car and drive, he can't without certain things. He needs to go back inside. He needs to go back inside, he repeats to himself as if it will force his legs to move. I need to go back inside. In the top pocket of her suitcase, she packed her medical information, a folder done by her hospice care team, the proper counts and prescriptions and prognosis for her. He tears at the zipper and pulls out the folder, then finds her fresh pajamas, a big sweater of his, socks because he knows her feet get cold, and her handbag and spare Zofran, 
And his wallet, his keys, where are his keys? On the counter next to the roses. Why did he leave them there? It doesn't matter now. He runs back out to the car and forgets to lock the cottage and turns the key in the ignition and drives. Can you pull over, she asks quietly ten minutes later. He doesn't know where the nearest hospital is. While she vomits out of the passenger side door, he squints down at an atlas and tries not to cry. If you like this story and would like to contribute, you can do so by going to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash audio fanfic pod. As a patron, you are granted early access to one new story of your choosing per month. Thank you for listening. And remember, the stories are out there.